Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to do a little detour when you get to verse 10 here and and talk about um, angels. Bear with me, my voice is a little gravelly, as you can tell. All right, verses 1 through 10, Matthew 18 and 19 tonight. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called the little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So we begin with um, the Lord's heart uh, for the children, and then he gives a warning in verses 6 through 10 of anybody that would undermine the faith of a child. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, in other words, talking about undermining a child's faith, that it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was drowned in the depths of the sea. And the question is, why would it be better? Because this person is going to have to give an account. The Bible talks about giving an account for every idle word. And here, you know, I think of the public school system today that undermines, or when you go to college, and the, the stats were quoted, I think, at our pastor's conference that between, it's almost 80% of those who are brought up in the church, as soon as they leave and they go to high school, the 80, 80% of them no longer have their walk with the Lord. That's who the Lord is talking about here. And he says, woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, it is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet and be cast into everlasting fire. And then he follows it up at verse 9 by saying, And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It would be better if you enter into life with one eye rather than two, then to be cast into hell, hell's fire. And the question is, what's the Lord talking about here? Is he taking that literally? Just flip over to um, Luke chapter 16. And I think what the Lord is saying can be described by the rich man who died. <clears throat> the rich man who died. And we're told in verse 22, and so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels, so we'll be talking about angels tonight, to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And then it says, and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger 
in water and cool my tongue. All right, let's say that um, back in this parable here, instead of hands and eyes, that he didn't have a tongue. Let's say he cut his tongue out. So why would it um, be better to be eyeless or armless? In this case, if you apply it with a tongue, it wouldn't be thirsting or it wouldn't, he wouldn't want that part of, of uh, his body. It wouldn't be there. So the idea is that of um, um, your whole body being in some sort of torment and suffering. And the Lord basically says, it can't be done. I can't cross from this side to the other side, or Abraham did. And there's a gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here cannot, nor can those pass from here. And if you go back now, that's the context that I think he's, he's talking about. Hell is so bad that to try to describe it is what the Lord is trying to do here. And that is by saying, it'd be better that you had no arms at all because they wouldn't be in torment. No eyes at all because they wouldn't be in torment. So the idea is you have an eternal body. Hell is forever. And um, these, to me, are some of the heaviest scriptures in the Bible. And then he reverts back in verse 10, and he talks about the children again, especially those that would undermine their faith. It says, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And this is the scripture that jumped out at me <laughs> as I was studying this. And I went back and reread it a couple times. And it says, don't do it because they're angels. That is saying that these children have angels that always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So what I want to do here is talk a little bit about the spiritual realm that um, I think we are woefully unaware of. Um, I think people who know their Bibles well really don't grapple with the question that there are angels. But let's take nothing for granted and let's just do a little um, uh, side trail here on angels. First of all, I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews. And let's talk about um, the idea of Hebrews is the Lord writing, using Paul to write to the Hebrews and explain why Jesus is replacing the old covenant and he's establishing a new one. And he begins by talking about the superiority of Jesus being over angels. So if you pick pick it up in verse 7, um, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companion, companions. 
Now, underlying gladness, because we'll be coming back to that, because we're going to talk about laughter a little bit later with the Lord. Verse 10, the Lord in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will grow old like a garment, and like a cloak you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But then he says, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Now verse 14, talking about angels. And what we're reading in Matthew is, better be careful how you treat those little ones. Their angels always look at the face of the Father, implying that angels are guarding spirits for these children. Well, the question comes up, what about us old guys? (laughs) And we find in verse 14, talking about angels, are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? This verse tells me that every born-again believer has an angel. And um, clearly verse 14 says they're there to minister to you. Um, We don't always see their guidance we don't always see their provision. I think of uh, uh, Elijah in the Old Testament, and his servant went out one day, and they were surrounded by Syrians, and they were, he was freaking out. He goes back inside and says, Alas, my master, it's all over. We're done for. And he goes, Oh, Lord, open my servant's eyes so I could really see what's going on. And his spiritual eyes were opened, just like Balaam's eyes were open to the um, angel that was going to take his head off, was closed for a while, but all of a sudden, evidently, the Lord could have the ability for any one of us here tonight to have our spiritual eyes open to that dimension, and we would see angels. There are angels here tonight. And um, we find that their purpose is to be ministers set to those who will inherit Salvation. All right. Um, how many angels exist? Does the Bible tell us? As a matter of fact, it does. Let's turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. We got our calculators out today in the office and started doing the math. And in Revelation 5, verse 11, this is right before um, the seven-year period of time begins Chapter 6 is the opening of the first seal. If you look at verse 17, uh, for the great day of his wrath has come, who will be able to stand. So this is about the tribulation. But before, notice where the church is um, in chapter 5. Only in verse 9 can the church sing this song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and made us kings and priests unto our God and we shall reign on the earth. The only people that can sing this song is the church. Uh, The church, I believe, was taken up in Revelation 4, verse 1, where it says, after these things, after what things? Well, after the things of the church, chapters 2 and 3. And then um, we have this four and five is a, a 
actually a vision from the earthly, leaving the earthly perspective and actually going into heaven. So we know the words ahead of time. We'll get to the tune when we get to heaven. But then it says in verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000s, and thousands of thousands. Well, we calculated this all up. That is 100 million plus, and I'm sure there's a, a whole lot more than that. So, and they were singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and glory. Notice it, it, it doesn't say they were singing. They were saying with a loud voice, and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So here we have um, the question, well, how many angels are there? If there's angels, answer, 10,000 times 10,000, and probably a whole lot more than that. Then we're told, if you flip over to Revelation chapter 12, that of all the angels, somewhere in before we know that angels were there according to Job, they sang, we're told in Job, when the Lord laid the foundations of this world. And we know that um, Lucifer was the one that rebelled. If you look at chapter 12, Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. It's symbolic. But if you look at verse um, 9 of the same chapter, it will give the explanation. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and he was cast out to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So at one time, all the angels were in harmony. At one time, heaven was uh, without sin, and sin originated in the heart of one Lucifer. And we read in verse 4 that his tail, we know that's the devil, his tail uh, drew a third of the stars of heaven. So of the 100 million plus angels, two-thirds of them um, actually became what um, many, as we're going through the Gospels, we're reading about people being demon-possessed and the Lord casting out demons. Where did they come from? Well, they were all part of this rebellion. So one-third of all angels ever created were somehow um, deceived into following Lucifer. And um, Jude tells us that there's some of them that, uh, um, well, well, before I get to there, um, look at verse 7. The time is coming when angel wars are going to take place. This is right in the middle of the tribulation. It says, the war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels... These these would be, Michael is always referred to as an archangel. Michael the archangel. Remember, Michael was the one who showed up in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel prayed. He's used to having his prayers answered just like that. And the Lord wasn't talking. 
And he goes, what's up with this? He didn't eat for three, three full weeks, 21 days, because he was waiting on the Lord. The Lord wasn't talking. Why? Because the prince of Persia, which is in the, um, um, a, a demon, evidently a very powerful one, that was withholding this information from getting to Daniel. That is, until, until what? Until Michael shows up. Now, Michael was of greater authority, and he is the one that allowed um, the message to get through to Daniel. Then Daniel ate again, but he was, he was without food. We'll be going back to Daniel in just a bit when we talk about eunuchs. But here, um, again, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. I mean, how wild can they get? <laughs> I'd love to see some guy try to put a movie to this. And, um, and they couldn't prevail. They were cast out of heaven. And we find that the devil is cast to the earth and he goes after Israel, the woman. And uh, he knows that he has a short time in verse 12. And that short time is three and a half years. All right. Uh, let's... One other... Th- thing I want to point out back in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 it says do not forget to entertain a stranger for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels now we get a guy that walks up and down the street here on Newberry <clears throat> and he's he has some physical problems and but the first time that I saw him I, I thought I wonder if that guy's an angel. And I pulled my car over because he was having a really hard time walking. And uh, he wasn't on drugs. He wasn't drunk. He just had physical problems. And I thought, yeah, but what if he's an angel? He says, be careful how you entertain angels because some of you have entertained angels unaware. Everybody here believe the Bible's the word of God? Believe it was, it's without error? Then there's a good possibility you entertained an angel. Somewhere, sometime. So be careful. Basically, we're told here, don't forget to entertain strangers, people that you don't know. It may be an angel in disguise. And you say, well, can angels take on human form? They sure did with uh, um, in the Old Testament. And... Um, um, Two of them had a divine appointment with Sodom and Gomorrah. And when they came in, they didn't know they were angels. Matter of fact, the men of the city wanted to rape them. So it's, it's something we don't think about, but the reality and the reason for the little sidetrack, we can go back to <clears throat> Matthew now. Remember, all this is because of verse 10. Don't despise one of these little ones. Um, because their angels see the face of our Father who is in heaven. He's going to come back to the little ones in just a bit, but uh, we have the parable of the lost sheep in verses 11 through 14. For the Son of Man has come to, uh, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? 
If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is stray? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety and nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of our Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, this parable is repeated in Luke 15. If you're taking notes, you might just want to write write down Luke 15 and do a comparative between the parable of the lost sheep in Matthew and the parable of the lost sheep in Luke. And what you'll find um, out is the parable is different from the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15. The key to this parable is the word save. In Luke 15, the emphasis is upon finding the lost. In Matthew 18, it is upon saving the lost. And, um, you know, we all know somebody here that walked with the Lord sometime and is no longer walking with the Lord. Wouldn't you agree? Everybody knows somebody that was walking with the Lord at one time, and, and for whatever reason, we call it being backslidden. And um, we are to not only be praying for them, but if you have one of those divine appointments and you happen to just to bump into them, know that that is not a coincidence. That is the Lord using you at a particular time in a particular place to say, how you been? By the way, where are you plugged in these days? That's the one I like to use because I know they're not. And uh, it makes them uncomfortable, but that's the idea. And uh, how you doing? Where you been? And if, if they've gotten um, caught up back in the old ways, the Bible says it's like a dog returning to its vomit. How is that for description? Uh, or a pig returning to its wallow. In other words, after knowing the truth and the goodness of the Lord's love and the fellowship of the saints, and then backsliding and not being able to have a part of that, um, you know, they're miserable. They, they know too much. They, to know the truth and the Lord's warning and his admonition, remember Lot's wife, she looked back. And as a result, she was turned into a pillar of salt. I take that literally. She looked back to the world and uh, Lot and his family were called out of Sodom. Paul tells us we can't get out of the world, even though I wish we could. I wish the rapture would happen before the study's over. There's a good place for an amen. <laughs> but he's, Paul says, I'm, I'm not telling you to go out of the world, otherwise you wouldn't be even be able to be here. But come out from among those and be separate. Who are your friends? And who who... Who's your family? Um, everybody here knows I have one brother that's not saved. The rest of the family is saved. But, um, um, you know, today was we, we had um, Tracy's birthday party. And it was our family. We had a bunch of people show up. We usually have famous Dave's for lunch. And we have a party. Have a good time. We sing wonderfully for for birthday parties. Right, Tracy? Am I embarrassing you yet? Uh, Okay. (laughs) 
But the, the truth of the matter is, you are, are more my family than one of my own flesh and blood brothers. And, um, and we'll get to that as, as we go through our study tonight, because the Lord's going to make the same statement. So now, as we get into um, um, 15, we actually went through this verse by verse on a Sunday morning, but I want to go through it anyway. Uh, this, this dealing with um, um, the, the little ones and taking care of them. Well, let me just say that uh, from the time that a baby is born until the age of accountability, if he dies, he automatically goes to heaven. Um, in Israel, at the age of 13, they have what's, they have what's called the bar mitzvah. And they believe that this man at this age is old enough to know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. So we call it the age of accountability. And up until that age, if a baby should die, let me quote David. I think I quoted David just recently, either here or to somebody personally, about um, babies being in heaven. And while the baby... It was a result of his sin with Bathsheba. They had a child. And David fasted and wept and prayed while the baby was alive. And um, was still alive, and he was praying for them. Uh, then he got news. Sorry, David, your, your baby died. Well, David gets up, washes his face, starts to eat again, and they go, what's up with this? And David said... I shall go to him, but he, he can't come back to me. David knew that that child was in heaven. He says, I'm going to go to him, but he can't come back to me. And David would basically say, I accept that, and I'm okay with that, and so I'm going to clean myself up because that baby is home. Having said that, there's probably nothing more heart-wrenching than losing a child. So I'm... Remember, the Bible says you weep with those who weep and you rejoice with those who rejoice. So you love on that person that much more and you grieve with them when they're going through that process. Sometimes people can be, they're trying to be helpful, but to go to a person who's grieving like that and say, ah, well, praise the Lord, their baby's in heaven. That's just not being tactful. And sometimes Christians are short on tact. Sometimes we have a lot of zeal, but we don't show a lot of tactfulness and how we should express it, you know, and say, listen, man, we're praying for you. You're going through it right now. Our heart goes out to you. And, um, and then, you know, as somewhere along there you can throw in, um, you know, that, that baby really is with the Lord. All right, let's go on to the offended br- brother. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. So you got somebody who sinned against you. You don't go on Facebook. You don't put it on the internet. You go one-on-one to that person and say, look, you sinned against me. Make it right. Hopefully, they say, they repent. They say, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. And if they do that, then you must forgive them. But in this case, um, take, the Lord takes it a step farther, and you tell this person, and they don't hear you, then you take 
two more, and by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And he still doesn't listen, and he refuses to tell them. Then you tell it to the church, and if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, a non-believer. He can call himself a believer, but uh, believers um, constantly have to walk in repentance. That's a good place for it, amen. If we confess our sins, what? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What if we don't cleanse our sin? What if we don't confess to the Lord? Um, I sinned here, I did this, I thought that. And um, if, if you're not in repentive mode, the Bible says, when you sin, confess your sin. But if you pretend it's not sin, then, you know, um, I always like to use the illustration wall. And this is, this is the danger of universalism, the idea that, well, God is love. God forgives everybody because he's God. Well, that's not true. God's also just. So he's holy, but he's also just. And not everybody is going to be saved. Ask the rich man who's still in hell to this day. And so, taking it a step farther, assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now I want to remind you of something here. Who is he talking to? He's talking to all of the disciples in verse 18. And what he just said here, word for word, if you just turn back one chapter, uh, two chapters to chapter 16, verse 18 and 19. This is when the Lord spoke to Peter when he had the revelation that um, when Jesus asked, well, who do men say that I am? It was Peter. Peter stepped up and says, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And um, the Lord commends him, says, good for you, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but God showed you this. You had, a, you had a divine revelation from God. And the reason I'm going back to this verse is in Roman Catholicism, they hang their hat that Peter is the first pope based on what is said next. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And they take that as meaning that the first leader of the church would, and first pope would have been Peter. When we talked about this on a Sunday morning, remember I took you to the book of Acts, chapter 15? And it wasn't Peter who made the final decision. It was James, the brother of Jesus, that was the one that said, okay, this is what we're going to do. He listened, and after he heard everybody speak, it said, here's my decision. And it wasn't Peter. It was James. And, uh, and then the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he says to, to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. When whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. They say, see, Peter has the keys. No, he doesn't. It's not just Peter. Go back to chapter 18. He's talking again to all the disciples. And what does he tell all the disciples? Word for word, exactly what he said to Peter. Assuredly, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
And I can tell you that you have the same authority. I have the authority to share the gospel with somebody. And um, um, matter of fact, we made Tracy, well, I would make her. Uh, she shared how she accepted the Lord. And it was actually at work on the job where she gave her life to the Lord. Some gal had led her to the Lord. And the gal that led Tracy to the Lord had the authority to tell Tracy, Tracy, your sins are forgiven. I have the authority from heaven to tell you that. I also have the authority to tell you that your name is put in the book of life, that angels are rejoicing right now. And this is really um, not only given, it wasn't just given to Peter. It wasn't just given to the disciples. It's to every person. Again, I say to that wherever two of you on earth agree concerning anything. Well, there's more than two of us here tonight. And now we're going from Peter to the disciples to wherever there's two or three believers that are together concerning anything that if they ask, it will be done by them, by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, we started this study talking about angels, that there's probably angels here tonight, right? Well, what do we just read right here? That I am there in the midst of them. The Lord is here. Um, he was, we read this in, um, uh, he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And it's, it's a picture of the Lord walking amongst the church. I always pray that the Lord helps us be aware and conscious of his presence. And one of the, the great things that, that plows up the, the, the ground, so to speak, of our heart is music, is worship. And if we get, if I don't get going, I'm not going to get there. <laughs> but um, it's something about worship that has the ability to get our eyes off the things of this world and prepares our heart for a Bible study. And it always amazes me how the Lord does that. But to illustrate the importance of forgiveness, Peter called to him and said, Now, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgave him up to seven times. Um, When we taught on this on a Sunday morning, I made the comment that uh, the Pharisees and the scribes taught three times, that's it. And you don't have to forgive them anymore. So basically, Peter is doubling it and adding one, and I think he thinks the Lord's going to be impressed with him again. And therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And um, in my research on that, that was anywhere between $12 million and $52 million that was owed. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children, all that he had until payment was made. Well, he couldn't make that payment. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. And then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. And this is a picture of the Lord. Uh, The application for you and I here is that we have a debt 
that we don't have the amount of money to purchase the most priceless commodity in the universe, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. You can't repay the debt of sin. Only the king can. And the king in this case said he was moved with compassion. This guy is, is asking for forgiveness and be patient with me. And so he does. Well, the guy that was forgiven went out and found one fellow who owed him 100 denarii. And I researched that, and it was 44 bucks. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. And so this guy goes through the same routine that he had just gone through the day before. Actually, the same day, he was on his way home. Servant went out, so he's leaving one place just being forgiven, and he finds this guy who owes him 44 bucks, and he says, have patience with me and I'll pay you all, but he would not. But he went and threw him in prison that, until he would pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and they told the king what this guy had just done. You know, know the guy that you forgave, the 52 million? Well, he walked out of the door here, found a guy that owed him 44 bucks, and um, we watched him throw this guy in, in prison. And then the master, the king, called him back and he said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you also not have compassion on your fellow servants just uh, as I had pity on you? If you have somebody that's asked that's wronged you and asked you for forgiveness, you have to forgive them. Amen? You have to. Why? Because you've been forgiven a debt when you repented that you can't repay. You simply can't repay it. Therefore, you have no rights at all, biblically speaking, to hold anything against anyone if they've really come to you and said, you know, I'm sorry for what I did. And uh, you can't, figuratively speaking, say, forget about it. I'm not going to do it in your heart. It's like putting your hands around their neck and throwing them in prison. Well, if you don't forgive them, this is what's going to happen. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Even so, your heavenly Father will also do if each of you from your heart, oh, I forgive you, yeah, don't worry about it, but in your heart, you really, you really haven't. And uh, they've asked to, to make it right, and you're still holding it over them. Well, you're the one that's going to have the sleepless nights, not the other guy. It says, you're going to get turned over to the tormentors. Uh, so your heavenly Father will also do to you if each one of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So we went through this um, verse by verse actually on a Sunday morning, so let's dive into chapter 19 with the top we got left here. And um, the issue of... It says, it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of uh, Judah beyond the Jordan. And a great multitude followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came to him, and they were testing him. And they said to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife just for any reason? Now, before we go any farther with this, I'm going to have you turn to Deuteronomy. The question 
here. Well, maybe I do want to read that. Yeah, let's read on to verse 7. Um, have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Then they said to him, well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away. Um, I, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24. So I'm going to give it a moment to get there. Deuteronomy is going to be the last of the five books of Moses, and then we're going to get into Joshua. But Deuteronomy 24, we're going to look at the first four verses. Now, when a man takes a wife and marries her, And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, it says, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, as I was reading McGee on this, and this is his comment on Deuteronomy 24. Um, As far as the Mosaic law was concerned, a divorce was not as bad as was marriage to a stranger. For instance, if a priest's daughter married a stranger, she was shut out from the nation of Israel. So sort of have an Israeli background to it. However, at the time, as time went on, the Mosaic law was made meaningless. In other words, what we just read here, um, they began to not take it as seriously. And as a result, um, that, that the granting of a divorce was done on the flimsiest pretexts, such as burning the bread. So if your wife is burnt your supper, <laughs> that was grounds for divorce, and you could actually, that's the disrespect that they had for this here. And the Lord's putting it in context. He, says, he did it because of man's hardness of his heart. They were coming up with excuses for the smallest things, okay? You're divorced, period. And just wrote a little note, you burnt supper, see you later. And uh, I, I think McGee is right on this, that his time went, it says, as a result, there was a great deal of discussion um, relative to, to divorce in our Lord's day. And this is what brought about the question. All right, let's go back to Matthew. And we read, 
In verse 7, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Now the Lord explains, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. In other words, the only grounds for a Christian uh, for divorce is adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So what was just randomly whatever mood you were in that day, and you get up on the wrong side of bed, whatever, in the Old Testament it got to the point they had such a lack of respect for um, what was written in Deuteronomy 24 that by the time went on and they had so little regard for the word word of the Lord that it, it became very, very commonplace. Now he goes on and he says to them, in verse 10, his disciples said to him, well, if that's the case of a man with his wife, then it's better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Now he's talking about people that can live by themselves without being married, and we're going to talk about eunuchs for a little bit. So, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs, and I'm going to go back to Daniel in just a second and show you how um, the Roman Catholics will take this verse here. And there are eunuchs who were made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, who is able to accept this, let them accept it. Well, this is a prerequisite for being a priest or a nun. You have to take the vow of, uh, of being a eunuch and look at the mess that the Roman Catholic Church has got itself into because of that law. Millions, if not billions of dollars in lawsuits over the years. Let's go back and show you, I'll show you how a eunuch is made. You need to go to Daniel chapter one. So I'll give you a minute to find Daniel. Daniel and his buddies, the four of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were brought before, we read in verse nine, and God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. So now the king has eunuchs that were made eunuchs, and he was the chief and head over all of them. So when it says some were made eunuchs by man, what does that mean? Well, these men were put in a place, probably over the king's harem, and and other ranks, and this one is called the chief of the eunuchs. So there were eunuchs that were made eunuchs by the king. And... um, it goes on, you know, they, they, his job was to prepare them um, to be counselors in the king's court, but they were kosher, and what they were serving were, was unkosher food. So Daniel talks to the chief eunuch, and he says, look, you know, can't eat, can't eat your ham sandwiches. That won't work. It goes against what we believe in our in our." faith. How about if you test us to just give us vegetables to eat and water to drink? 
and let's see if uh, who, who comes out looking better at the end of 10 days. And he consented, and verse 15, at the end of 10 days, their countenance was better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacy. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And so um, the eunuch then presents Daniel before the king. And in verse 20 it says, In all matters of wisdom and understanding which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's go back to Dan, uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. Again, um, the idea of eunuchs and what a eunuch is. He ends it by going back to the little children. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from them. He then is approached by one who we call the rich young ruler. In verse 16, And behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? Now the Lord knows this man, and he knows exactly what he's going to say, and he knows exactly how to set him up. And so he starts out by saying, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. He's trying to get that guy's attention. And he says, but if you want to enter into life, then keep the commandments. What I want you to notice about the commandments here is that they're the ones that deal on a relationship with your fellow man. They're actually the last of the commandments. It says you shall not murder. Well, it has to do with your fellow human being. You shall not commit adultery. That has to do with your fellow human being. You shall not steal. That has to do with your fellow human being. And you shall not bear false witness, which has to do with your fellow human being, and honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of these do not deal directly with your, the commandments that deal with, with, with the Lord himself. These are the ones that are, are based towards man. And so the young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. Now, I've always been sarcastic at this point with this guy. Like, who are you kidding? (laughs) That you've kept all these commandments. And, um, but you know what? Because they're not dealing directly with the Lord, maybe he never did commit adultery. Maybe he never did steal his neighbor's lawnmower. Maybe he really did honor his mom and dad. So, remember, I tell you, as, as I continually go through the scriptures, I have the freedom to say, I might have taught that wrong. After going through it this time, I got a little different perspective. Because the commandments here are just simply one-on-one. And maybe he was a nice guy, and um, um, he didn't murder, he didn't commit adultery, he wasn't a thief, he wasn't a storyteller against people. He could have, I suppose he could have done all those things. 
But the Lord's just setting them up and he, because he knows what the real issue is, is in any of these things. The Lord knows what's in this man's heart. So the young man said, all these things I've done for my youth, what, what do I lack? And Jesus said, well, if you want to be perfect, and that means the word there is complete. If you want to be complete, go sell what you have and give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. You're doing a pretty good job. But when the young man heard him say that, he was very sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it is as hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Before I get to, um, I think, what is the Lord's sarcasm and humor here, um, Matthew 6, 24, if you're taking notes, and it deals with um, um, this verse, no one can serve two masters, for he'll either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And it's in this person's case, his what was in his heart and what was his God, and this is what the Lord was digging for, was his wealth. He lived and he served money. And I can't believe we're we're in the, in the in the prayer room before we came out and Mary's talking about this video that she saw of humans messing with their dog and uh, pulling it down and go, peek-a-boo. And I said, you didn't really say that, did you? Because it's in my notes tonight. Peek-a-boo. And so they were playing peek-a-boo with the dog, and there's, all of a sudden they'd keep staring on their face, but then they were close to a door, and when they dropped it, they just slipped out the door, and the expression on the, the peek-a-boo game was over, and I was driving the dog crazy because where did they go? And he's looking all over. And I said, I can't believe you said that. And I, look, here's my nine notes. How do you mess with a baby? Go, goo, 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 goo. And what do they do? They start laughing. And you go, peek-a-boo. I said, my notes, little baby's laughter, precious peek-a-boo. And I couldn't believe that Mary brought up that story because I think the Lord invented laughter. I mean, just look at some of you guys. All right, I'll leave that one go. But when he said uh, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, you'll read some commentaries that say there's a gate in Jerusalem and your camel, if it had a lot of riches on it, you won't be able to get in the door. But if you're humble and poor, then your camel can go through the eye of a needle. No, I believe the Lord is showing that he actually had a sense of humor. Uh, the joy of the Lord is our strength, right? And I would have loved to uh, been around and heard Jesus actually laugh. We know he cried. Do you believe that he ever laughed? I believe he did. I, I believe that this is um, saying something that's funny here, that it's, it's, it's hard for a rich man to go to heaven just like it is for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And, they, and that's impossible. And that's what the disciples said it. After this, 
Um, Verse 25, when the disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, well, then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it's impossible. What must I do to go to heaven? Be good? No. You know, it's impossible for anybody to get to heaven, harder for rich men. And it's, it's simple uh, common sense. Why is it more difficult for a rich person? Simple. They have a lot more temptations. They have access to being maybe misusing their authority, um, misusing their money. Money is, like I said earlier, amoral. You can use it for good. You can use it for evil. So there's nothing wrong with money, but it's the love of money that's wrong. And that's where this guy was at. He loved his money. He couldn't do what the Lord was asking him to do. Let's finish it out in verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, Well, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? What I want you to notice here is the Lord doesn't correct Peter. Neither does he reprove Peter. But he commends him, and he says, Assuredly, I say to you, in the regeneration, in other words, when you get your resurrected bodies, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember last Sunday's study? Not here, not now. What was it all about? What, are they, what were they arguing about? They were arguing about who's the greatest. And we, we want to sit on your right hand and your left hand. And here, the Lord clearly is going to tell them that, here um, that they are going to sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. As for the church, it says, don't you guys realize you're going to judge angels someday? That'll make your head spin. Think about that. I'm going to judge an angel someday. You're going to judge angels someday. What does that mean, Dwight? Answer, I don't know. (laughs) But he says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit everlasting life. The truth is, um, when you begin to follow the Lord, you really do have a worldwide family. You can go to places where you don't know them, but if they know Jesus, wham, there's one-on-one contact immediately because the same one that lives in you lives in me, and we're family just like that. And many who are first um, will be last. We're right at our time. Let's stand and we'll close it in, in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And as we take these truths in, we thank you that it's not here and it's not now. We thank you for the the promise of a hundredfold and an inheriting e- eternal life and the promises that, um, that you've given to us. Lord, help us prioritize our thoughts. Help us prioritize seeking first your kingdom. We thank you for the Bible, Lord, that always brings us back to true north and for the Wednesday night Bible study. Lord, bless your people as we go out and we pray already for Sunday morning. In Jesus' name, amen.